Welcome, everyone. I'm Mike Grimes here again today with Pat Abendroth, and we're here today returning to Marching with Machen, our series on J. Gresham Machen and his classic book, Christianity and Liberalism. This is going to be part two in our series, and last week, Mike, we started talking about different things that Machen wrote before we talked about the book, and we talked about what is faith, and I had that special sacred anointing yes. autograph version <laughs> Well, I don't know if you saw on social media this week, but our friend Barry found one of those. He did, yes. And I think it was on eBay for $1,200 yep. or something over $1,000. So Protestant relics are a thing. They are. And I didn't realize just how valuable my copy is. And so I think perhaps we need to uh, make sure our security is up to snuff. So as we typically do a sound check, test one, two, test one, two, maybe we need to do a security check as well. Might be a good idea. Okay, I'm feeling very secure at this point in I time. I think we're safe. I think we're ready to go. We're ready to be Machen's warrior children. That's right. With such security as that. <laughs> so are. we're marching with Machen as we continue on. Oh, We're going to move today into chapter two of the classic Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, the chapter is called Doctrine. So if you've got a copy, if you access the one we link to online, uh, we're looking at chapter two, Doctrine. But before we get there, I do want to offer a quotation from one of Machen's arch rivals, one of his critics, and that would be a man named H.L. Mencken. He was a journalist who opposed organized religion, obviously Christianity. And if you want to think of him in terms of modern day journalists, you could think Lester Holt meets Richard mm. Dawkins mm. or something like that. So Mencken writes this about Machen upon Machen's death. Mm. Dr. Fundamentalis is what he calls him. Mm with a smile here. And he says, the Reverend J. Gresham Machen, Doctor of Divinity, who died out in North Dakota on New, Year New Year's Day, got on the whole a bad press while he lived. And even his obituaries did much less than justice to him. The newspaper reporters, as to other antinomians, a combat between Christians over a matter of dogma is essentially a comic affair. And in consequence, Dr. Machen's heroic struggles to save Calvinism in the Republic were usually depicted in indecent or at all events in somewhat skeptical terms. The generality of readers, I suppose, gathered thereby the notion that he was simply another fundamentalist on the order of William Jennings Bryan. But he was actually a man of great learning and, what is more, of sharp intelligence. What caused him to quit the Princeton Theological Seminary and found a seminary of his own was his complete inability as a theologian to square the disingenuous evasions of modernism with the fundamentals of the Christian doctrine. He saw clearly that the only effects that could follow diluting and polluting Christianity in the modernist manner would be its complete abandonment and ruin. Either it was true or it was not true. If, as he believed, it was true, then there could be no compromise with persons who sought to whittle away its essential postulates, however respectable their motives. And then maybe one more paragraph from Mencken. Thus, he fell out with the reformers, lowercase r, who have been trying in late years to convert the Presbyterian Church into a kind of literary and social club mm. devoted vaguely to good works. Most of the other Protestant churches have gone the same way. But Dr. Machen's attention as a Presbyterian was naturally concentrated upon his own connection. His one and only purpose was to hold it, the church, resolutely to what he conceived to be the true faith. 
When that enterprise met with opposition, he fought vigorously, and though he lost in the end and was forced out of Princeton, it must be manifest that he marched off to Philadelphia with all the honors of war. Hmm. I think it's a great, great testament to Machen not being a wild-eyed, crazy, unlearned fundamentalist who just wanted to fight, Uh, but he is actually affirming him and, in a certain sense, is almost siding with him. Right, yeah. And we can include a link to the entire obituary that we just quoted there on our show notes this week. Super. So that does bring us to where we need to be today, and that would be part two of our series called Marching with Machen, as you said. If people are just joining us, that's fine, but you may want to tune in to episode seven uh, to get up to speed, but you will certainly feel welcome even if you don't. Right. So today we're going to be looking at chapter two, of Christianity and Liberalism. Again, that chapter is called Doctrine. It's a longer chapter, um, and it's got a lot going on in the chapter. So today what we want to do is we want to engage with some of the major emphases throughout the chapter. I think the first theme that comes up right away and runs throughout the entire chapter would be his pushback against relativism. Mm. And so one thing Machen, I'm sure, never said in his entire life was, my truth. Yeah, there's no way. (laughs) Yes, that's something I thought of as I looked through the chapter as well. Very much looking at objective truth, not just his own truth or what we think is right and what we feel is right. Absolutely, and he actually uses that kind of terminology. He says, Paul was interested above everything else in the objective and universal truth of his message. He also says, it never occurred to Paul that the gospel might be true for one man and not for another. Hmm. So absolute objectivity, clarity, and as we're going to see, it's because it is tied to history, to actual real things that really happened. And so relativism is something that he's addressing even without using that verbiage. But right away, he's saying things that really resonate with us today, as we jokingly said, uh, my truth. Well, there is truth and there is error, but there's no such thing as something that's true for someone when it comes to the gospel and not true for someone else. Ready to move on? Yeah, let's move on. Yeah, the next uh, theme that we want to look at a little bit is uh, hostility to doctrine. So as we move on to another emphasis in this chapter, we see Machen criticizing the theological liberals for their criticism of doctrine. They seem to really be going after the idea of doctrine as if they don't have any doctrines, but he does. And Machen hits that square on. Right. He says, there are doctrines of modern liberalism just as tenaciously and intolerantly upheld as any doctrines that find a place in historic creeds. So he's answering their objection by saying, well, it's true. We have doctrines. We have official teachings, but you have official teachings as well. Yeah especially in your opposition to what is historic Christianity. Right. In another place, he says regarding this, in seeming to object to all theology, the liberal preacher is often merely objecting to one system of theology in the interests of another, and the desired immunity from theological controversy has not yet been attained. Uh, so the anti-dogma voices are just as dogmatic. Right, right. An example that Machen uses with theological liberals when it comes to their tenaciously held doctrines, even though they don't think they have doctrines, would have been the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. So God is kind of the cosmic Santa Claus mm-hmm. that loves us all and cares for us all equally. So let's not keep anyone out of our churches because it's nice to be nice. Right. So that would have been popular back then. We don't use it so much today, but we still have the same sentiment. Right. 
that we're all, God loves us all equally and we're all the same and there's nothing special about believing in Jesus. And this is dogmatic for them. It is a doctrine that they would be willing to, to fight over. And Majin's simply pointing out it's simply not true. Right. I find it interesting today, Mike, in churches that are supposedly not theological and then they say that we are too theological when in fact we're both theological. Right. The things we do, the things we teach, the sermons we preach, the music that we use, the songs that we sing, they all reflect theology, right. and they all reflect dogma, and they dogmatically reflect theology. The question is, which kind of theology? And I think that's essentially Machen's point, and it's a good one to be made. So that raises a question in my mind. Uh, when you hear people today say that Christianity is not a religion, uh, but a relationship, how do you respond to that? I think it actually fits the very thing we're talking about. And I've used that phrase before, that slogan before, mm -hmm. and people do, and I think they mean the right thing by it, because oftentimes when people say something like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, they mean uh, your heart has to be in it. Mm -hmm. you, it can't, you can't just go through the motions right. and stand up and sit down at the right time and right. go through the formalities. If that's how we use it, I I'm all for it. But oftentimes, uh, we don't realize what we're getting at when we say it's not about a religion or it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Uh, strangely enough, the word religion uh, means relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the word religion means relationship with one's deity. So uh, it's kind of like saying it's not about a relationship. It's, a, it's about a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of strange in that sense. And also that, that statement also can sometimes reflect the philosophy that Machen is attacking. Hmm. And that is something along the lines of saying, well, it's just between me and Jesus and it's on my terms. Right because it's my relationship and it's my personal relationship and it doesn't have anything to do with doctrines. It doesn't have anything to do with theology, anything dogmatic, the religion side of things. Right. And so in that sense, that's a, that's a really bad slogan to use if you're using it in that sense. And Machen would give it a thumbs down. Yeah, he would. So in Machen's discussion of doctrine, he intersects it with history. So we want to look a little bit now at the importance of history. Because they're obviously related, and they do, as you say, intersect. Yeah. Here are a couple of things he says about the matter of history as it relates to doctrine. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements, so both are crucial, joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. Mm -hmm. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Yeah. What an awesome way to make things clear, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I'll never forget the first time I heard you even say that from the pulpit. It's like, wow, that is a great quote. Both are important, indissoluble. <laughs> indissoluble. Not sure I've ever said that word before except when I'm quoting Machen, but they are indissoluble. Let me encourage you listeners to use that at Chick-fil-A this week. <laughs> at Chick-fil-A on Sunday when you're there. Yes, right. I heard they have free sandwiches on Sunday. At least they do in Omaha. <laughs> they do. Line them up. <laughs> Along a similar line, he says, these two elements, again, history and doctrine, these two elements are always combined in the Christian message. The narration of the facts is history. The, nar the narration of the facts with the meaning of the facts is doctrine. Hmm. And then he gives an example. He says, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That is history. He, he loved me and gave himself up for me. That is doctrine. Such was the Christianity of the primitive church. Hmm. 
And I think he says that at the end, such was the Christianity of the primitive church, because sometimes people say, well, we want to cut through all this history and all of this development, and we want to go back to primitive Christianity. Mm, Uh, And he's saying, you know what? It doesn't get more primitive than suffered under Pontius Pilate, and he gave himself up for me. Yeah. History and doctrine. So it makes sense why Machen says elsewhere that the center and core of all the Bible is history. So Bible teachers need to be students of history. First and foremost, I think Machen would say that that is actually the case. It's more than history because it relates to us, but we absolutely have to pay attention to the history of things. So with theological liberalism, you end up having uh, those opposing the Bible, oftentimes opposing its history or its historicity, but then they're also at the same time opposing the meaning, the traditional, classic, confessional, creedal meaning of the history. They end up attacking it on both levels, and Machen is defending it on both levels. Mm -hmm. And so he's defending the historicity of the person of Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem who grew up in Nazareth. And he's also defending the significance of the doctrine, what what Jesus said he was doing. Right. So, for example, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 is a classic one that Machen uses. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah. So even Jesus teaches substitution. So it's not just as an example, but it's in place of, which would rub the the theological liberals the wrong way. But he's pointing out the fact that, yes, historic person, and not only that, he wasn't the strong silent type that didn't make the meaning of it known. He made the meaning of it known. So as Christians, and and as a pastor, I keep saying this again and again, we talk about the historic faith, and we also talk about the fact that Jesus not only lived in history and died in history and was raised historically before eyewitnesses, uh, all along he's explaining the meaning of it all. He's explaining the doctrine. So we have confidence in the history, but we also have confidence in the Christian meaning of the history because we have it on good authority from Jesus. Right. And Machen says about this, uh, Jesus certainly did not content himself with the enunciation of permanent moral principles. He certainly did announce an approaching event, and he certainly did not announce the event without giving some account of its meaning. Yep, yep. He was overstepping the line that separates an undogmatic religion, or even a dogmatic religion that teaches only eternal principles, from one that is rooted in the significance of definite historical facts. Amen. But we talk in those terms today, eternal principles, as I keep beating up on timeless truths. truths, yeah. And speaking of eternal principles or timeless truths, this brings us to Machen talking about moralism and a robust attack against anything like moralism would be Machen saying, but it will be said, Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. The assertion is often made and it has an appearance of godliness. Mm -hmm. Sure sounds good when I hear people say it, but it is radically false. And to detect its falsity, one does not even need to be a Christian. Right. A well-informed, honest, earnest unbeliever can read the Bible and say, I don't believe any of it's true, right. but it most certainly is not all about timeless truths and eternal principles. Right. It's about substitution. It's about resurrection. It's about repentance. It's about justification. Christianity is not first and foremost a life. It actually is first and foremost a doctrine, yeah. an official teaching. Elsewhere, he says, it was based not upon mere feeling. I feel good. (laughs) It wasn't based upon mere feeling, but 
upon an account of facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. So this is sort of like what today when we say we live the gospel. Yes. It's actually not true because we can't live the gospel, but that definitely fits in with Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. Right, absolutely. Or as St. Francis, who is a sissy, said, <laughs> um, preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. Right. I've actually been told that perhaps he didn't say that, but he's always the one who's infamously reported as saying that. Yes. The fact of the matter is you have to preach the gospel because it's about history and it's about doctrine, right. and so it's actually not about something inside of us. It's not something we can right. do. Right. So Machen is actually hitting this head on, and we're still dealing with the problem today. So it's why he's so helpful for us today, because we can't live the gospel. We, we don't see Christianity as a life. Yes. And how about if we get Paul to weigh in on this a little bit via Machen? Yeah, Machen talks a little bit about Paul in this chapter, and he says, Paul was not interested merely in the ethical principles of Jesus. He was not interested merely in general principles of religion or of ethics. On the contrary, he was interested in the redeeming work of Christ and its effect upon us. History and doctrine. Right, right. His primary interest was in Christian doctrine. And now we come to one of my favorite parts in this chapter, maybe even in the book, and that's Machen's interaction with Galatians and the Judaizers and the Apostle Paul, still talking about Christianity being a doctrine, not a life first and foremost. His treatment of Galatians and the Judaizers from a Pauline perspective is absolutely fascinating, and I've never forgotten it uh, ever since I read it so many years ago, because it makes so much sense. Yeah. Because in effect, what, what he's going to say and what he does say in the chapter regarding the Judaizers is that if Christianity were all about morals and doing the right thing and right behavior and the way that you live, the Apostle Paul never would have criticized the Judaizers mm -hmm. because they actually would have been the kind of people who would have gone to a city and helped clean it up. Right. But first and foremost, the gospel isn't about that. Yeah. So let's begin interacting with this quotation regarding the Judaizers. Machen says, but what is the difference between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of the Judaizers? What was it that gave rise to the stupendous polemic or argument of the epistle to the Galatians? To the modern church, the difference would have seemed to be mere theological subtlety. Mm. About many things, the Judaizers were in perfect agreement with Paul. The, the Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. There is not a shadow of evidence that they objected to Paul's lofty view of the person of Christ. Without the slightest doubt, they believed that Jesus had really risen from the dead. They believed, moreover, that faith in Christ was necessary to salvation. But the trouble was, they believed that something else was mm -hmm. also necessary. They believed that what Christ had done needed to be pieced out by the believer's own effort to keep the law. From the modern point of view, the difference would have seemed to be very slight. Paul, as well as the Judaizers, believe that the keeping of the law of God in its deepest import is inseparably connected with faith. The difference concerned only the logical, not even perhaps the temporal order of three steps. Paul said that a man first believes on Christ. Two, then is justified before God. Three, then immediately proceeds to keep God's law. The Judaizers said that man, first of all, believes on Christ and second, keeps the law of God the best he can, mm -hmm. and then third, is justified. Mm -hmm. So I want to keep reading this a little bit, but already he is, I think, doing a masterful job. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't think that clearly today, I don't think, in evangelicalism, and we would tend to think the Judaizers uh, were 
denying everything that would be true about Jesus. Right. As if they were almost atheists. Right. Yep. But that, and they were probably, you know, they, they would have been followers of what, what would Jesus do? Yep. Uh, they're trying to be moral people, in fact, very moral people. But since Christianity is first and foremost about a doctrine, not a life, the life should follow, Paul butts heads with them and takes the gloves off. Yeah, and certainly something that Christians today, I think, are met with, struggle with, uh, those who are imposing the need for obedience to continue to make sure that your salvation is secure. And so it comes back to, they probably need a big dose of Machen. It's a doctrine first and life follows. Instead, we act like Judaizers. To continue on with Machen, the difference would seem to modern, quote unquote, practical Christians to be a highly subtle and intangible matter, hardly worthy of consideration at all in view of the large measure of agreement in the practical realm. Mm. What a splendid cleaning up of the Gentile cities. It would have been if the Judaizers had succeeded in extending to those cities the observance of the Mosaic law, even including the unfortunate ceremonial observances. Mm. Surely Paul ought to have made common course with teachers who were so nearly in agreement with him. Surely he ought to have applied to them the great principle of Christian unity. Mm. To interject, surely Paul should have said that the neonomians were actually fellow teammates, but I digress. As a matter of fact, however, Paul did nothing of the kind, and only because he and others did nothing of the kind does the Christian church exist today. Mm -hmm. Paul saw very clearly that the differences between the Judaizers and himself was the differences between two entirely distinct types of religion. It was the differences between a religion of merit and a religion of grace. Hmm. So wonderfully said, I would commend that to any and all Christians as they think through uh, the Christ of history, who is also the Christ of doctrine. And first and foremost, Christianity is about what Christ has done. And then we respond with trying to be good Christians. Then we live in light of the gospel. We don't live the gospel. Right. Yeah. And so Machen says, Christ will do everything or nothing. And the only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on his mercy and trust him for all. Outstanding. Let's wrap things up by looking at a final emphasis that we're going to highlight today. And that would be also related, but as Machen deals with the so-called golden rule in the yeah. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And this is also still alive and well today. Well, yeah. People refer to Jesus as uh, the kinder, gentler Moses, Sermon on the Mount. Let's get rid of all of the dogma, all of the doctrine, all of the theology, and can't we just treat others as we would want to be treated and get back to the to the be happy attitudes, right. as Robert Schuler would say. <laughs> and Machen does a, a splendid job responding to this sort of thing as he engages the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, he does. He says, the new law of the Sermon on the Mount in itself can only produce despair. Strange indeed is the complacency with which modern men can say that the golden rule and the high ethical principles of Jesus are all that they need. In reality, If the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God are what Jesus declares them to be, we're all undone. We have not even attained to the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and how shall we attain to that righteousness of the heart which Jesus demands? The Sermon on the Mount... Ah, pastors, listen, the Sermon on the Mount, so mark it, make sure you remember this... 
regardless of what your wackadoodle commentaries say. That's right. Keep this in mind. The Sermon on the Mount, rightly interpreted, then, makes man a seeker after some divine means of salvation by which entrance into the kingdom can be obtained. Even Moses was too high for us. But before this higher law of Jesus, who shall stand without being condemned? The Sermon on the Mount, like all the rest of the New Testament, really leads a man straight to the foot of the cross. Awesome. Great. And he's saying this because Jesus said things like, unless you are perfect, right. you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah. So it leads to our being undone. It is not, well, you can just follow this easier, lighter law. Right. In fact, uh, Moses is clear and says what's true and right, but Jesus, uh, if you will, um, brings it even into sharper focus. Yeah. By saying, but I say to you, he's not lessening it. Uh, He's calling for absolute strict obedience. In light of the fact that Jesus calls for absolute perfection Mm. in the Sermon on the Mount, which should drive us to despair and then to the cross, another helpful quotation is in order. Here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to hear the most fundamental difference. Here it is. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. Mm. Think command. While Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Mm. Liberalism appeals to man's will while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. Mm. So for clarification, what he means by in the imperative mood, he was a Greek professor, Mm -hmm. but in the imperative mood, he means commands. Loving God, loving neighbor, and liberalism says that's the gospel. When it's not the gospel, it might be true that you need to love God and love neighbor, but that's actually the imperative command. That's the law. Mm -hmm. And yet Christianity is in the indicative. Christ died for our sins. He did something for us. And Machen's saying that is the difference. So actually, liberalism ends up being a form of legalism. Yeah. And so a lot of these things that he's saying, yes, are addressing theological liberalism, people who are naturalists, who deny the supernatural, but in a roundabout way, he also is addressing legalism. He's also addressing people who confuse the law and the gospel and the gospel and the law. So I'm quite certain that when it comes to our episode two on law and gospel, that Jay Gresham Machen got on iTunes and gave it five stars. (laughs) He did. So therefore, all of you who are like Mike and myself who want to be Machen warrior children and march with Machen, be sure that you channel your inner Machen and go give us five Five stars stars. as well. That's right. (laughs) And now that you're all motivated to give us a five-star rating and seeing that our security personnel have other obligations, uh, we need to go ahead and wrap it up for today. Be safe. We want to wrap it up for today. If you want to find the obituary we referenced earlier in the episode, you can find that in the show notes. And we'll see you next time on The Pactor.